Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's Word as never before. Let's have a word of prayer as we engage this evening's topic. Father, thank you so much for giving us uh, an entire evening to think about your Son, to study about Him alone through your Word. And Father, I pray that as we engage your Word and the illustrations, that all of it together would serve to stir our hearts to seek to know you more. Father, I'm thankful that I am amongst individuals that love to study your Word. And Father, I am confident that every single one of them has a relationship with you. But the reality is, is Lord, we can always come to know you better. So Father, I pray that tonight would serve that purpose. That you would open your eye, our eyes to the Holy Spirit and your Holy Word, and that we can see you afresh as possibly we've never seen you before. We ask, Father, these blessings from you in Jesus' name. Amen, Father. As Jim said, this is a two-part series. It concludes tomorrow. And then we'll meet again until Saturday evening, Prophecies of the Mysteries of the Antichrist. And there, there may be a, a, an additional surprise on Sunday evening that I need to confirm with the rest of the volunteers that are helping out. So keep your ear to the ground. I'm not going to say too much right now, but Sunday, it may be a, a good night for you to be here. So I'll have more details on you probably by tomorrow. So tonight we're going to be looking at prophecies on the identity of the Messiah. And I like to always make the, the, the Word of God as uh, approachable and non-intimidating as possible. So while church planting in Columbus, Ohio, I realized that a lot of the young people that I studied with love sports. So I told them, if you want to understand prophecy, you've got to like basketball. Anyone here this evening like basketball a little bit? Um, it's okay if you do, uh, because you, you will have appreciation from what I'm about to show you. Uh, I don't know if you know who this gentleman is. Have you, any one of you heard of the Globetrotters before? Oh, yeah. Globetrotters. Uh, Thunderlaw is one of the youngest members, and um, he recently broke the Guinness World Book of Records for the longest throw into the basket, and we're going to see it right now. These are the officials of the Guinness uh, World Book of Records. Um, making it official, you know, they want to make it verifiable, empirical, and so they're marking down the various places to see how far can this young man, Thunderlaw, throw the ball, and he's in the bleachers. Wow. Now it's slow motion, so we can appreciate it in all its beauty. There he goes. It's spinning, 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 and look at that small little circle, kapow. Here's the, you get appreciation of the size of the throw. Are you impressed? <laughs> Some of you may be inspired now, right? Start doing push-ups, trying to throw the ball <laughs> across the court. Um, that, that record has yet to be broken by that young man. But it's impressive because, right, 
he's throwing a small ball across a court. And, of course, this is not to size, but the fact that he's throwing something so small for so far is actually 109 feet and 9 inches. That's the world record. Just so that you have a reference, if you want to go back home and start measuring in your neighborhood, out your, your uh, driveway, <laughs> uh, take out your basketball and start practicing. Um, the fact that he threw it and where it had to land, it had practically virtually no error or no margin for error. A half a millimeter to the left, and it would have dunked out. A half a millimeter to the right, and it would have dunked out. A little bit too, far, too hard, and it would have bounced all the way back. I'm, I'm very good at those. I tell my friends, soccer is my sport, but I, love to, I like to play other sports in soccer. And I tell people, if, if hitting the rim counted for half points, I would be in the NBA. I'm really good at hitting the rim, uh, but not making it inside, which is what counts. Um, it was what he has done impresses us because of how precise his throw had to be. It had to go in the right direction with the right force at the right height for it to enter into this small funnel of space called the hoop. That's what makes it impressive, and that's why, uh, why no one has been able to yet break that record. I'm sure someone is practicing. And this is obviously a parable that I'm sharing with you this evening to illustrate when God gives prophecies, if, like we learned last night, um, there's another being here on planet Earth, and we call him Satan or the devil, but last night we learned that actually those are names that mean what? Does anyone remember what it means? The adversary or the enemy. And so when he hears that God is about to do something amazing, something on behalf of the human race, he tries with all his might to frustrate. We learned on opening night when we looked at Daniel chapter 2 that Jesus was born under what metal in that statue? Do you guys remember? It was gold, iron. silver, bro- yeah, iron. iron. Who remembers what the iron represented? What empire? Roman. Roman Empire. Now, we know that when Jesus was born, there was a king that wanted to worship him. If you've been to any Christmas pageant, you probably remember a Christmas program. You may know the name of this king. Does anyone know by name who the king was? King Herod. He tried to kill Jesus, but he ended up slaughtering every child. Does anyone remember the ages? Birth to age two. So Satan, from day one, has been seeking to frustrate all of the prophecies that God has in his word. On top of that, the things that God has prophesied had to happen with such precision of timing and occurrence. It becomes empirical evidence that there's a God in heaven, he knows the future, and he has revealed that through his word. Prophecy has been the source of encouragement and hope. He has turned many atheists into believers. Right now I have a dear friend named John Tromley. He is preaching a very similar session to this in uh, Oakwood in Taylor. And he was an atheist, and a friend of his was going to come to one of these meetings some 20 years ago, and he was his drinking buddy. And John was like, I'm not going to lose my drinking buddy to this foolishness, to these fables and myths, and so I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to take notes, and everything that preachers say, I'm going to disprove to you, and then we're going to go and get drunk, okay? And so he came opening night, and his friend went back to the bar, but John stayed (laughs) 
And by the end of the meetings, he was no longer an atheist because of prophecies. Prophecies for him became the solid foundation upon which he could place his faith. And through that, in the Word of God. And it has changed his life. He has changed his family's life. And he will tell you his testimony of how God took an atheist, an avowed atheist, skeptical about everything, but through prophecies, God was able to lead him to have faith, not just in the prophecies, but in the God of the prophecies. And that's the point. That's the point of this. So we have prophecies of the Messiah, declarations made long ago in the most forbidding circumstances, declarations made that had a small window for fulfillment, declarations that were completely against the odds. Yet these prophetic declarations are true. God's prophetic declarations are the surest foundation for us to place our faith in. His prophetic word is true. So we're going to look at Jesus. Uh, when actually existing, or when we look at something that, you know, some people will begin to ask the question, especially in today's age, was Jesus even real? Did he even exist? If you, if you watch the Learning Channel, the Discovery Channel, and all of those other channels, they sometimes have programs that lead many people to doubt even the existence of Jesus. But when you talk about something being real, a definition from Webster's is that it's actually something that is existing or happening, not Imaginary. Something real is not fake, false, or artificial. Something real is important and deserving to be regarded or treated in what kind of a way? Serious. Serious way. So, to many skeptical minds today, because of our scientific age, because of our uh, obsession with empiricism, you know, I have to see evidence, I need to be able to reproduce it in a test tube or whatever, taste it, handle it, um, God, the existence of God, has been called into question. In science, instead of being one of the best directors to or or directing methods to God, has become one of the biggest sources of skepticism and doubts. But I'm going to show you, uh, begin here. Before we even get into the prophetic aspects of Jesus, I want us to see if Jesus was even a historical figure, a real person. And we're going to look at tonight are not Christian sources. The fact that you can believe at least, at the very least, that Jesus existed We have non-Christian sources that confirm that some 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus walked on planet Earth. We're going to look at this first uh, Jewish historian named Josephus. Um, In Flavius Josephus' book entitled Antiquities, book book chapter 20, book 20, chapter 9, says, So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. Jesus had a brother named James. At the end of the Bible, you have a letter that he wrote to the churches. And Josephus speaks about James being brought before the Sanhedrin. And he identifies this James James as being the the brother of who? Jesus Christ. So here's a, and he was Jewish. He had no intention of leading people to believe in Jesus. The Jewish nation had not accepted him as the Messiah. So there was no interest in trying to verify Jesus' existence. Uh, the next two sources are all pagan, all Roman. Tacitus, in his uh, record of hi- uh, history, says, Hence, to suppress the prevailing rumor, he, Nero, transferred the guilt upon fictitious criminals and subjected to most exquisite tortures those people who, for their detestable crimes, were already in truth universally abhorred. That means hated a lot. And known to the vulgar by the name of 
Christians. The historical aspect of uh, time when um, Tacitus is uh, describing is when Rome experienced a fire. Many people began to look at Nero, and Nero began to transfer that guilt to Christians, and Christians began to suffer persecution because of that. And he continues saying, the founder of this, of this name was Christ, one who in the reign of Tiberius suffered death as a criminal under who? Pontius Pilate, imperial procurator of Judea. This is historical, verifiable data, not from Christian sources. In fact, these individuals were persecuting and killing Christians. So there is no agenda here in trying to verify or validate the Christian faith. If, if anything, he's just describing Christians as individuals that are hated, should be destroyed, and who cares about them? Oh, by the way, this gentleman named Christ founded this group. So we have historical data that confirms the existence of Jesus. The last one we'll look at tonight is Pliny the Younger, and this is what he has to say. They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to who? To Christ, as to who? A God. And bound themselves by a solemn oath not to practice any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery. The Roman Empire didn't know what to do with Christianity because as far as they were concerned, they just wanted peace. Rome wanted peace so that they could, let, they could collect taxes. That's all they cared about. So we have these Christians who the citizens are starting to become alarmed because Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Both at the empire, the, the big individuals in the, in the political arena are becoming Christians, and the common individuals are accepting Christianity by the thousands in the, empire, in the, in the Roman Empire and, of course, the Jewish authorities are still trying to squelch Christianity. They're becoming a bit concerned that Christianity may have more influence than they do upon the Roman authorities. So they're inciting Roman authorities to persecute Christians uh, with all these lies. So they're curious. Who are they anyway? Are they Jewish? No, they're not Jewish. What are they? So they took these slaves, uh, flogged them, threatened them, and said, Tell us what you believe. And this is the information they got. These Christian slaves define their faith as believing in Christ, as to a God. We sing to him. We have our faith in him. And so the Romans were like, and this is what we're persecuting you for? Rome couldn't understand why they were so hated. But irrespective of the reasons, they left for us an invaluable evidence that it is a verifiable fact that 2,000 years ago, in the area of Judea, around Jerusalem, a man named Jesus, who claimed to be the Christ, walked on planet Earth. There ought not be anyone that should doubt or could doubt the existence of Jesus. They may doubt who he claimed to be, but not that he really existed. But for us this evening, we're not going to just simply stay there. We're going to continue into... A we're going to continue into the examining of the rest of the evidence. We have sufficient secular historical evidence to know for a fact that Jesus Christ did exist. The historical ex existence of Jesus Christ is real. But Jesus himself claimed to be more than just an important figure in human history. Jesus did not claim to simply be a great historical figure. His claims went well beyond that of a mere human being. He claimed to be the Savior of 
of the world. How can we know he is everything he claimed to be? So we've been looking at six keys to unlock the book of Revelation as we begin this journey in understanding prophecies. We've already looked at the symbolic aspects, the major use of the Old Testament. Last night we saw how order structures help us understand for the existence of evil. And tonight we're going to begin looking at Christ-centered prophecies. As the book of Revelation says, the revelation of who, my friends? Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not beasts, not earthquakes, not plagues, but Jesus Christ. I want to take you back 2,000 years. The Sunday morning after the crucifixion of Jesus, everything that never, no one ever saw this coming. None of the disciples saw this coming. Um, the religious leaders really didn't see it coming, even though they were going for it. No one saw it coming that Jesus would die. But if this caught them by surprise, Sunday morning would catch them by even more surprise. There were no celebrations. When the tomb was empty, there was no one there to greet Jesus, except some soldiers that fainted. That was it. No one there to greet Jesus and say, you've been victorious. You have uh, done what you promised. You have died for the sins of the world. And now the victory is yours. No human being was there. In fact, what we read in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27 is the following. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they were conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Why were they sad? Jesus is dead as far as they're concerned. It's over. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? What's happened? So they said to him, The things concerning who? Jesus of Nazareth. And look at the description. Who was merely a what? A prophet. Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But these words are painful. These words must have heard Jesus when he heard them from his disciples. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. We were hoping. Are they still hoping? Were they hopeful? Their hope was dead. Their hope was gone, which leads to a very powerful point. I alluded to this last evening. We need to see Jesus more than just a miracle maker. We need to see Jesus prophetically, my friends. And for many decades, myself included, I grew up in the home of a missionary. I only knew Jesus as the one that did, you know, walked on water and these, these miracles. But listen to this. The disciples had seen Jesus heal the sick. The disciples had seen Jesus feed thousands. The disciples, and not just feed thousands, but does anyone know what Jesus used to feed uh, the thousands? One of the occasions he used? Fish and bread. Yeah, five loaves and how many fishes? And it's not like this fish, right? It was little fishes. 
The disciples were the ones seeing these miracles taking place. The disciples had seen Jesus calm the storms. The disciples had seen Jesus raise the dead. Yet none of these great miracles were powerful enough to sustain their faith and hope in Him as the Messiah. They needed to place their faith in Jesus on a more solid, lasting platform, which is what, my friends? Prophecy. And I know how my journey with God was for many years. I'll believe in you if you give me a job. I believe in you if you give me a girlfriend. I believe, as I, getting, I got older, I was like, forget the girlfriend. Give me a wife. I need one right, right away. I was in my mid-30s, and in Spanish years, that's like 80, right? <laughs> There's expectations from your parents and your family. We want children. We want grandkids. You, all you're going to give us is pets, right? <laughs> and... I lost my faith in Jesus. I lost my hope in Jesus because I had never been shown why I needed to believe in Jesus from the Bible. Look at this. Jesus could have simply said, hey, it's me. Look at my hands. But look at what Jesus does to restore faith and hope in these unbelieving disciples. Um, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to do what? Believe in all that who? The prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at where? Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. I would have loved to have heard that Bible study, that sermon. And they said to one another, this is the outcome of that that sermon, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and, listen carefully, while he opened what? The scriptures to us. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those that were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has done what? Risen indeed. It wasn't the miracles, my friends. It wasn't the amazing, incontrovertible miracles that Jesus did. It was prophecy that caused their hearts to burn and to once again believe the unbelievable and hope beyond hope. It restored what can be restored in every human heart. There's no heart that is too skeptical or too atheistic that when objectively approaching the prophetic writings of God will not walk away with the opportunity of believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He was not just someone in a historical book. Jesus Christ has risen. He is in heaven, and he is coming back. That is what the prophetic message entails. Then he said to them, when he meets with the rest of the disciples later on, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written where? In the law of Moses, and where else? The prophets, and where else? The Psalms concerning who? The Psalms is the largest part of the Old Testament. The books of Moses entail the first five books of the Bible, and then the rest of the prophets is the rest of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament has one main single focus. It's not a what, it's a who. Who is the focus of the entire Old Testament? Jesus Christ himself. When we read the Psalms, we need to ask God, help me to see Jesus in there. When we read the book of Genesis, the book of Leviticus, when we read all the books, we need to ask God the Father, help me to see Jesus, because he said that all those books pointed to him. 
This is the prophetic reality of Jesus. We don't have time to look at all the, the Bible study that Jesus gave at that time. We're limited and restrained by time. Uh, opening night, I told you that there is a book that goes along with the book of Revelation. It's one of the biggest concentrated sources of prophetic uh, uh, book material regarding Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to begin looking at it. Tonight, uh, tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to be looking at the prophecies from Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be begin with Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. We begin reading. Seventy weeks I determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, this is the angel speaking with Daniel. And so, let me ask you, when the angel says, your people, what nationality was Daniel? What ethnic group was Daniel? Jewish. It's a Jewish. So when he says, your people, who were, who were Daniel's people? The Jews. the Jews. And for your holy city, what was Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So 70 weeks are determined for the Jews and Jerusalem. That's just a simpler way of saying it. For what? 70 weeks for what? Here it is. To finish this transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Tonight I'm going to highlight this a little bit more, but I want you to see it even tonight. If you put an imaginary line right here, look at these first three. Transgression, sins, and iniquity. That's everything that the rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 have brought to the human experience. And whatever's going to be happening, we're just getting an introduction, whatever's going to be happening through the Jewish people in Jerusalem is going to have an effect. Whatever that's going to happen is going to finish sin, make an end of, I mean, finish transgression, make an end of sins, and make reconciliation for iniquity. These are three negative aspects that have happened to the human race that God is going to resolve. The second half is bringing everlasting righteousness, fulfill prophecy, and anoint the most holy. These are positive things. God is going to relate to the negative things that have happened to us and bring positive blessings to us through something. We haven't identified it yet. But this, all things are being prophesied will happen within the Jewish people. In what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay? I hope you had supper tonight because we're going to be going deep into the Bible. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, to restore and build which city, my friends? Jerusalem. Until who? Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Before we even go to the next slide, I want to hammer this. I want to drill this into our heads. Here we're starting to get two bookends of time frames. From the going forth of the command, there's going to be a command that's going to be made by someone. We have not yet discovered who. But someone's going to make a command to do what from that verse? What is that command going to command to do? Restore and rebuild what city? All right. So when that command is given, some time is going to go between that command and what other event? The coming of who? The Messiah. So between the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah shows up, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We haven't yet interpreted that, but we're simply putting landmarks. Somewhere in history, a command is going to be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. When that command is given, whatever this period of time it ends up being, seven weeks and 62 weeks, 
when those time period ends, who should we expect to see? Messiah the Prince. Are you guys with me so far? Okay, I'm trying to go slow because we're going to repeat this all night long because this is the, the most amazing prophecy that confirms Jesus is who he claimed to be, not just a historical figure. I'm going to give some of us a historical context. I did not understand that prophecy because why is Jerusalem needing to be rebuilt? What happened to it? I'm going to give you a little bit of a um, historical context. How many of you are familiar with David? Uh, who can tell me something about David that, that comes to mind? The first king, what was his profession before he was king? Shepherd boy. Shepherd boy. Uh, for most boys, I love that story because there's a part of a sling and some stones about David. Who knows that story? Goliath, Goliath you got it. I love that story. You know, I was like, Mom, you got to buy me a sling for my birthday. <laughs> no, we're not because you're going to use it on your brother. How did you know? Right? <laughs> we'll knock his head off. Um, so David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon did something. He was, he was supposed to be the wisest man on earth and did a foolish thing. He began to marry pagan women, lots of them. The Bible says that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Um, for an unconverted man, that would be paradise. But the reality is, is that if you can love a woman, one person, you can love no one. Solomon allowed these women, the Bible says, to turn his heart from the Lord. Solomon is known in one of his early parts of his reign that these two prostitutes had brought a baby. They were both fighting as to whose baby it was. And Solomon said, bring a sword and cut the baby. He had to give one half to the one and one half to the other. Matter finished. And one of the prostitutes says, no, 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 no. Let the other one have it, but don't kill the baby. And King Solomon says, give the baby to her. Only a real mother will love her child so much that it would prefer to lose that baby but keep the baby alive. And people were like, wow, that has to be God's wisdom. His fame just spread wide and far about how wise this man was. This same Solomon, some decades later, because his heart departed from the Lord, the Bible says that he was offering his own children in the fire for pagan gods. He brought idolatry all over Israel, and it went south fast. There was apostasy. That's what I've described to you that's, is that what that words mean, unfaithfulness to God. The kingdom was divided. The top part, the northern part, was called Israel, and the two southern tribes were called Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. There was also the little tribe of Benjamin. So the kingdom got divided into two parts. The northern part was known as Israel, and the lower part, the smaller part, was known as Judah. Assyria came and destroyed Israel. Assyria also went deep under Jeroboam and the other kings, doing some horrible things. And God would send prophet after prophet, repent, return to the Lord, repent, return to the Lord. I don't want to have to depart from you. I don't want to have to stop protecting you. But Israel became so hard-hearted that eventually God had no more remedy. And so he allowed the Assyrian Empire to come and destroy Israel completely and scattered all those ten tribes all over the world. So Jerusalem, Judah, got to see what happened to, Assyria, to Israel. God was hoping that they would repent, but they didn't. God also sent prophets time and time again to Jerusalem, to the kings, to please return. And there was one king, King Josiah, that made a small reformation, brief reformation, 
But the, this, the, the wave of apostasy and darkness was so strong that eventually God had to allow Babylon to come and take Judah captive. And that's when Daniel, that's how Daniel ends up in Babylon. Daniel was a young person when he was taken to Babylon. He got to see the entire royal family being slaughtered. His parents, his grandparents, his aunts, everybody was slaughtered. The only people that were preserved were people his age, young kids that could be brought to Babylon and indoctrinated into the Babylonian culture. Daniel made up his mind, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, is a precious verse that every young person should memorize because he begins by saying, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not pollute himself in Babylon. He made a decision here. He didn't say, well, God, if you give me a job, well, God, if you, you know, I'll get a good health care plan. He didn't say any of that. He just said, Lord, I see what happens when we are unfaithful to you. Even if I lose my life, I will never stop being faithful to you. The book of Daniel is very inspirational in being, living a committed life to God. Well, Jerusalem was destroyed. Babylon came and tore out the wall, destroyed it, and burned Solomon's temple. Took all of the utensils, all the gold that, that Solomon had accumulated, and brought it all to Babylon and then burned the temple to the ground, leveled it. That's why there had to be a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Does that make sense now? Because of what had happened. Daniel was alive when there was no Jerusalem, no temple. And so God was prophesying, Daniel, sometime in the future, a command is going to be given for the temple to be restored and rebuilt. When that command is given, time's going to move forward, seven weeks and 62 weeks. And when that time frame ends, who's going to show up? Messiah. Got it. Awesome. So now we have this decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The date is in your handout as well. It's 457 B.C. Um, this is uh, the two books that you can read them. It's found in Ezra chapter 7 and Nehemiah chapters 1 through 4. That's where you read about the individual, the king, a Persian king, who actually not just wrote a command but funded the project. He sent Jews with materials to rebuild the city, but especially the temple. And his request was, when you build a temple, pray for me. So God stirred the heart of a pagan king to help this thing to be rebuilt. And that command had gone out in this, in this year, 457 B.C. So know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So now we understand this part, right? We understand why Jerusalem needs to be restored and rebuilt. And we know that whenever that command, we have that date, we have that year. Even secular archaeological dates anchor that day, that year, 457. So we know when the command was given. Now we have the second part. Seven weeks and 62 weeks, we go forward until Messiah would show up. Now tonight, I'm going to share with you another prophetic principle found in scriptures that one prophetic day equals one literal year. And this prophecy is given to us in weeks. So one prophetic week, how many days are in a week? Seven. So it would total seven literal years. Now I'm going to show you some verses that for the Jewish mind, this equating of days to actually mean years 
is all throughout the Bible. It's not in just one little place. Genesis chapter 5, verse 14 says, So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. So this uh, similarity of speaking, this idiomatic expressing of when you say days, you're actually meaning what? Years. is found in many places in the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he, is, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his what? His days shall be 120 years. You also find that in Genesis 5.23, Genesis 9.29, there's several other places. Job 32, verse 7. I said, Days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. Job is written also in poetic form. Remember when we talked about the, the, the chiastic structure last evening? Days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. That is a chiastic structure, and days is equal to years. Psalm 77, verse 5, I have considered the days of old, the what? The years of ancient times. Remember how I told you that Jewish, thought doesn't rhyme, uh, Jewish poetry doesn't rhyme phonetically, but with thought? And you have it right here. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. Ancient times matches up with what part? Old, you got it. And days matches up with what? Years. You also see that in Exodus 13, 10, 1 Samuel 2, 19. The last one. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days. For each day you shall bear your guilt, how long? One year. Namely, 40 years. So all throughout Scripture, the Bible provides for us a template of not simply idiomatic, but poetic, even apocalyptic language in which one prophetic day equals how long? One literal year. So now we have this, we're starting to put this formula together like the Rubik's Cube, right? We're turning right, turning left, and you're allowing the Bible to guide us and navigate this. One prophetic day equals one literal year. One prophetic week equals seven literal years. So we have been given here seven weeks, and 62 weeks. Don't worry if you left your calculator at home. Uh, I know that it's late at night, so I'm not going to ask you to do the math, but you can check me. You can check the math if you want to. Um, seven, uh, one, uh, seven weeks would be um, plus the 62 would be seven weeks plus 62 weeks, a total of 483 literal years. If you add seven plus 62, you get a total of how many weeks? 69. So the reason that it is divided is because the wall of the city was beginning to get built, but it stopped, and then it picked up again with the rest of the city and the temple. That is the only reason that it's given in two, in two parts. But all of this together is counted as the decrees being given to rebuild the temple in 457, and at the end of that time period, the Messiah would come. So when we begin to look at the Bible, it begins to fill in these gaps for us of helping us identify that we are being given a time prophecy. This prophecy would begin in 457 and move forward 483 literal years and take us all the way up to 27 AD. Something happened on that year. Luke was a physician, very meticulous, very punctilious in all of the, the details, and a very good researcher. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1, to three, 1 through 3, I never knew why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record this part. Is 
because of Daniel. Now in the 15th year of the reign of who, my friends? Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Philip tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were, were high priests. Why go through this introduction? Luke wants us to know what year this was. And he doesn't give us one reference point, two reference points, three, four, five, six, seven re historical references so that we, there's no mistaking on what year, what time this was taking place for a reason. Now, he gives us the 15th year. Tiberius has, had been in reign for 15 years. I was excited when I began to do my own personal research, started looking at historical books, and I found one by Dr. Robin Sayer, entire Tiberius, which is about him, and she has to say this about him. Thus, when in AD 12, the powers held by Tiberius were made equal rather than second to Augustus on power, he was for all intents and purposes a co-princept with Augustus. And in the event of the latter's passing or dying, would simply continue to rule without an interregnum or possible upheaval. Um, Augustus wanted Tiberius to, to succeed him in the throne. So as he was aging and getting old, he simply told Tiberius, come and reign. I'll just be here as the person that waves, but you lead the, the empire. And that happened in AD 12. Now we saw that in Luke, on what year of his reign? 15. So if he began to reign in AD 12, what's 15 more years? What does that take us to? AD 27, where the, from the command to build and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, AD 27. Luke is pinpointing the year the prophecy from Daniel was pointing forward to. From AD 12, from the beginning of, of Tiberius' reign, to the 15th year of Tiberius' reign, 12 plus 15, you get AD 27. What happened there, Luke? Why have you been so detailed about that year? The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching and doing what else? So you may know this John as John the, the Baptist, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that who comes? Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus received the Holy Spirit upon him on the day that Jesus experienced what? His baptism. On what year did Jesus experience his baptism? AD, on the 15th year of Tiberius' reign, which turns out to be in our years, which one? A.D. 27. Jesus knew when he was going to get baptized. Not because he saw it in the clouds, but because Jesus studied the scriptures. He knew that Daniel's prophecy had set a date, a beginning year. 
a command would be given to do what, my friends? What would the command do? Rebuild and restore what city? Jerusalem. And that's the beginning point. Six, seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks, 483 years, literal years, would we, we'll go past that command until who would come? Messiah the Prince. And this is where sometimes, even myself, I never put these two together. Christ and Messiah are, he, this Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word. Both of these words simply mean the anointed one. The Messiah is not a name, it's a title. And Christ is not a name, it's a title. When we say Jesus Christ, we are identifying Jesus to be the anointed one. When we say Jesus the Messiah, we're saying Jesus was the anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, they both mean the same thing. Jesus was anointed on the day he was baptized. For what? Immediately, in Luke chapter 4, after his baptism, Jesus goes to the synagogue, gets a scroll. I'm, I'm going to read it. So when he came to Nazareth, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed the book of who? Not just Isaiah. He gets the title. The prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has done what? Anointed. In the Greek which is what the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in, that, would have re- that reads in Greek, Christ. He has christened me. He has made me the Christ. He has anointed me. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it would have said, He meshiach me. He made me the anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. You are witnessing prophecy being fulfilled through who? Me. Because God has done what with me? He has... Anointed me with what? The Holy Spirit. In what event of Jesus' life did that happen? On the day of his baptism. And Luke identifies the year in which Jesus was baptized as the 15th year of the, the, the reign of Tiberius, which historically is A.D. 27, which marks the end of that prophecy that was given to Daniel long ago, over four centuries before, that from the command to restore and rebuild in Jerusalem, 483 years into the future, who would come? Messiah. And on the precise year, it took place. Jesus knew it. And that's why he could say with authority, today, this scripture is what? Fulfilled. And he's fulfilled many others. Many others. So we have now a clearer picture of how the disciples' hearts burned because it wasn't the miracles that convinced them. It was that things that happened to Jesus that were out of his control. He didn't tell Judas, betray me. He didn't tell Pilate, wash your your hands and turn me over. He didn't tell none of the the pagan Romans to do that that act. He didn't tell John the Baptist, start start, uh, baptizing. The Holy Spirit began to to tell John to start doing those things 
things happened in the life of Jesus that he had no doing of his own. He simply stepped in history at the right time, at the right place, in the right way, fulfilling prophecy. So, again, so that it is clearer and clearer. The more we repeat it, the clearer it gets. Um, Artaxerxes would send this command in 457 A.D. to the rebuild Jerusalem. <coughs> 69 weeks would go, and in 27 A.D., Messiah the Prince would come. But before all of these things are mentioned, the angel had said that 70 weeks would be given to the Jews and Jerusalem. What's 70 minus 69? One. So one week would be left. Jesus began his ministry at the beginning of uh, I mean, at the beginning of this last week, if you add 7 plus 62 is 69, plus 1 is a total of 70. The 70 weeks that were given to the Jews in Jerusalem began to happen when Jesus was baptized. Evidence to believe. There is an evidence, is an evidence that is open to all, the most highly educated and the most illiterate, the evidence of experience. God invites us to prove for ourselves the reality of his word, the truth of his promises. He bids us taste and see that the Lord is good. Instead of depending upon the word of another, we are to taste for ourselves. He declares, ask and you shall receive. His promises will be fulfilled. They have never failed. They can never fail. And as we draw near to Jesus and rejoice in the fullness of his love, our doubt and darkness will disappear in the light of his presence. Do you agree, my friends? And there's no more effective way to draw near to the living Christ than through the living prophetic word. Because this happened in spite of a pagan, a Jewish king, Herod, trying to kill babies. God fulfilled his prophetic word. He guided world events so that at the right time, his son would be, would be sent and Jesus would become the anointed one. The Messiah has come to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to give recovery of sight to the blind. You know, when the Bible speaks about, you know, broken hearts, don't immediately go to that old, old song by Whitney Houston, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? Right? This is not something for Hallmark cards for the Day of Valentine's for people that are single, or people that have been broken up, This is not speaking about that kind of a broken heart. In the Bible, the Bible says that the heart, from the heart issues everything about life. We should guard it. The heart is not pointed simply to your emotions. The heart is where you are. It's you. And when the Bible speaks about the human heart being broken, it's the very essence of our personalities, our characters. We are broken human beings. It's not, I mean, this is a broken car. You know, I I love my wife, and she'll forgive me for saying this tonight. (laughs) Some some months ago, she was with the girls trying to back up the minivan from our garage, and our garage is kind of small, and my, my car was parked next to hers. And as she was backing up, she was doing it with the door open trying to keep an eye on the girls in the back seat who were, of course, horse-playing with each other. And she was looking at that mirror on that side, but didn't see that the door was open and that my car was there. 
And so she was wondering why the car stopped because she was not stepping on the brake. And she realized that the open door touched my bumper and pushed it in. <laughs> and so she, ah, she panicked, put the car in drive, drove forward, and uh, stared at this bumper that had this big, huge dent. And as she was praying, God must have sent an angel to push it in from the inside. He popped back out. Thank you. <laughs> Is my car broken? No. Small dents, small scratches. When a car is broken, really, it's because there's no more hope for that car. And that's what the Bible says about every human being. Sin has broken us to the very foundation of what we are as humans. We act shocked that sometimes we see in the news someone getting pulled over by a police officer and that person driving away, speeding away, parking somewhere else, pulling out a, a gun and began to randomly shoot individuals. It shocks us when someone goes into a school with little children and begins to shoot everyone, adults and children. My friends, we are all broken. Jesus had to come because there is no politics there is no philosophy, there is no pharmacology, there is no counseling that can fix the real problem in humanity. It's our hearts. This is you and me, my friends, inside. This is you and I beneath the veneer of the outside. We may smile. We may have outward success. We may have a bright mind. But my friends, some of the greatest atrocities on planet Earth have been done by some of the brightest minds in the planet. To live life, my life, in denial that this is me, it's a big lie. This is why relationships fail. This is why families are broken up. These are the real reasons for divorce. This is the real reason for the brokenness. This is the real reason why our community in Monroe is one of the highest usages of opioid and drugs in the whole nation. This is why this entire region suffered economically because of all of the political corruption that took place with the automotive industry and all that stuff. People lost jobs, careers. We are broken. And until Jesus comes into our lives, nothing you do will fix you. It's more than just changing the rearview mirror, my friends. It's more than just praying that the, dump, the bumper pops up. Everything about you inside is broken. You don't need someone to give you better advice. You and I need a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. You know, we didn't get to read it. But the day that Jesus read that prophecy from Isaiah and said, I have been sent to do all these wonderful things. Heal, restore, set free. The Gospel of Luke says that the individuals hearing this were so offended, that very day they were ready to throw him off a cliff. The one that comes to save us, we push away. That's how broken we are. That's 
how broken you and I are that we would reject the one that loves us most and the only one that can heal us. Jesus came to heal the blind, to give us evidence that He could heal our broken eyes so that you can begin to see humanity for what it really is, including yourself. I used to worship many movie stars and music stars until they started dying. And the history would come. I mean, it, it hurt me. I got teary-eyed when I found out this actor that had made me laugh so hard named Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. He didn't just die of old age. He died of heartache and pain that would not go away. He died of, with a broken heart began to open my eyes and see how can someone that appears to love so much and makes millions laugh be so sad, so sad inside? Because we don't see it. You need Jesus to open your eyes, not to the brokenness of other people, but to the brokenness that lies within you. Jesus came to hear our broken ears and mouths, for years, I grew up with my dad being a missionary, preaching sermons similar to this, and he would go in one ear and out the other. Couldn't wait to go home and play with my Nintendo. Couldn't wait to go to Blockbuster and rent five or eight movies for the weekend, the new releases. I used to go to sleep with my sound system next to, next to my bed so that I could have blasting music until I would fall asleep. Because I knew... I knew that if I gave God a night of silence, His Spirit would talk to me. I was pushing away the only one that could fix my life. He came to heal our broken bodies, came to heal our broken hearts. This is one of the stories that when for the first time my eyes were open to who Jesus could be for me. This was a woman that had been married five times. She finally gave up on marriage, decided to opt for just cohabitation. She just had this guy move in. She didn't want to meet anyone in the community. She knew everybody gossiped about her. She was in everybody's mouth. But Jesus initiates this conversation because he came to seek and save the lost. We are not here because we have made a decision, my friends. We are here because in God's providence, he has been working in your heart, in my heart for months, maybe even years to bring us to this point. This woman, after a, a dialogue that she was not expecting to have, is one of the few people Jesus identifies to her as the Messiah directly. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one that has been anointed to preach the gospel to those whose lives are bankrupt, morally addicted to so many things, a slave to so many habits. I have come to set captives free. 
I rejoice to hear stories of individuals that live their lives almost destroying their families, destroying themselves until they find Jesus. Actually, until Jesus finds them in the gutter and they finally acknowledge, you've been chasing me, haven't you? You've been chasing me, haven't you? Tonight, I don't know who's here tonight. But I'm inviting those of us who maybe for the first moment, time, you're being awakened to realize I am broken. I need healing. Not of physical ailments, but of the spiritual disease called sin. Jesus, I believe in you. And I accept you as the promised Messiah. Tonight, Lord Jesus, please, let me hear your gospel, for I am spiritually poor. Heal my heart, Lord, it is broken. Set me free from sin's guilt. I don't feel worthy of you, Lord. I don't pray because I don't think you'll answer me. I am guilt captive. Set me free from the power of sin, Lord. It oppresses me. I try to throw it away, but it haunts me. It finds me again. I run, but there it is. Lord, set me free. Let me proclaim by faith. I once was blind, but now I see. Do you want Jesus to be your Savior tonight? Do you want him to be more than just a historical figure, a painting on the wall, someone we sing meaningless songs to? Or do you want him to be your Savior tonight? I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I want us to close tonight, all of us singing. And as we sing, I'm inviting you in, this, in the privacy of your heart. Invite Jesus Christ to be the anointed Savior of your life, to heal your heart, to set you free. What God promises, He keeps. I want us to sing Amazing Grace as Debbie gives us the introduction.
the Lord hath promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my As long as life endures, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Precious Lord, forgive. Forgive the heart that we have inherited, so polluted with sin and pride. Pride that convinces us we only need you for emergencies down here. How can we be so blind to our own broken heart? We hurt each other, we hurt mostly those we claim to love most. Precious Father, tonight I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to not simply leave us understanding dates and chronology and prophetic interpretations. All of these prophecies point to Jesus as the Savior of the world. But the Savior of the world cannot do anything to me, for me, until I receive Him personally. Lord, I'm praying for those who may attend church, may know you from a distance, but have never opened their hearts to you. They have yet to see their brokenness. Father, tonight, I pray that your spirit would bring deep conviction and desire that they will not leave this place without accepting you as their Savior, as their Messiah. Father, does anyone here, I don't need to see this. None of us do, Lord. Our eyes are closed in reverence for you. But if there's someone that wants to physically show to you, Lord, that they are doing this by faith, I'm inviting these individuals to just raise their hands to you, to raise their hands to you and say, it's me, Lord. It's not my mom. It's not my wife. It's me. I need to be saved. I need to be saved from myself. I need to be saved from my sins. I ask, Father, that the blood of your Son, Jesus, would cover these individuals. 
Remove the guilt. Remove the power. Let them know what it feels like, what life is like with a Savior, with your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for those of us that have accepted you and have become careless, neglectful. Father, tonight we recommit ourselves to you. If there's someone tonight that recognizes they've lost their first love and tonight, Lord, they want it back more than anything, more than anything. In the privacy of this room, Father, I invite them to raise their hands to you, only your eyes to see this small act of faith, saying, Lord, I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be faithful and committed. Tonight, I purpose in my heart to let you be my Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your word. But above all, Lord, tonight, all of us are thankful that you sent your son Jesus to save us, and heal us, and restore us. In His name we pray. Amen, Father. Amen. Amen.